Chapter 34 A History of California, the Spanish Period. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 34 Under Mexican Governors, 1822 to 1835. Strictly speaking, there was no Mexican period of California history. During a quarter of a century, the sovereignty of the Southern Republic was more or less continuously acknowledged, but the actual intervention of Mexico in the affairs of its distant province consisted in little more than sending of governors and a few score of degraded soldiery. These years were, therefore, more prominently marked by other influences. By far the most important among them was the coming of the Americans. The tide had set in some time before, but now it reached the full, wherefore it is best that the detailed account of this epoch should be left to the historian of American California. The great era of Spanish achievement had passed. All that remains to do in this volume, therefore, is to bring the story to an end with a recital of the local events which occupied the attention of the descendants of the conquerors until the last blow was struck for the change to a new regime. The keynote of the era, from a provincial standpoint, was to be found in its turbulence. There was much revolutionary unrest, based largely on personal and sectional rivalries. Men fought or intrigued for office and the chance to administer the scant resources of the treasury. South fought north, challenging its traditional predominance. All, however, were united in a greater or lesser dissatisfaction over the neglect of their affairs by the Mexican government, a factor which manifested itself in more than one political upheaval. In other words, Alta California was experiencing the same type of growing pains that other Spanish-American lands from Texas to Cape Horn had suffered in the years immediately following independence from Spain. Left to itself, the province would, very probably, have evolved into a respectable independent republic, or two republics, like those in the temperate zone of South America. These years also saw the downfall of the missions, which for so long a time had been the most important institution in Alta California. Twelve men filled the gubernatorial chair in this period. They were Luis Arguello, 1822-1825, Jose Maria Echeandia, 1825-1831, Manuel Victoria, 1831-1832, Pio Pico, 1832, for 20 days only, Echeandia again from 1832-1833, but in the south only, Agustin Zamorano, 1832-1833, in the north only, Jose Figueroa, 1833-1835, Jose Castro, 1835-1836, Nicolás Gutiérrez, 1836, for four months only, Mariano Chico, 1836, for three months only, Gutiérrez again, 1836, for three months, Juan Batista Alvarado, 1836-1842, Manuel Mico Torrena, 1842-1845, Pico again, 1845 to 1846, and Jose Maria Flores, 1846 to 1847. Pico, Castro, Alvarado from 1838, and Pico again were civil governors only. During their incumbency, the military power was held respectively by Echeandia, 
who was the de facto if not the de jure ruler gutierrez who soon became governor mariano guadalupe vallejo eighteen thirty eight to eighteen forty two and castro the former civil governor who served as comandantes they were virtually co-governors outwardly the period of luis arguello's rule was less stirring than many which had gone before or any of those to come the change from the mexican regency to the empire was formally accepted in eighteen twenty three followed a few months later by an oath of allegiance to the newly established republic in eighteen twenty five the people of the province quite as easily swore to support the mexican constitution which had just been submitted to them no doubt they would have subscribed with like facility to any other governmental change this is indicative rather of the hazy character of the mexican connection than of fickle inconstancy on the part of the californians in truth it mattered little to them what mexico was far more important was the opening of the province to foreign trade and the coming of men like william hartnell and abel stearns who settled permanently in the province and became the founders of important anglo-californian families which have been prominent in the life of the golden state ever since no doubt the greatest local excitement during arguello's administration was produced by the indian revolt of eighteen twenty four in february of that year there were almost simultaneous uprisings at the santa ines purisima concepcion and santa barbara missions the precise causes are a matter of controversy but it is probably true that hatred of the mission indians for the soldiery was a prominent factor the outbreak started at santa ines when one of the soldiers flogged an indian thereupon the indians sought revenge and surprised the soldiery by appearing well armed a brisk battle followed in which it seems however that nobody was killed although the mission buildings were set on fire next day a detachment of troops arrived from santa barbara and the indians yielded on the same day as the santa inez disturbance there was also a revolt at purisima concepcion and a somewhat more strenuous battle the indians attacked the soldiers and next morning compelled them to surrender seven indians and four white men two of them guests at the mission had been killed the surviving soldiers were allowed to depart and the indians remained in control of the mission for nearly a month when the news reached santa barbara the indians there became greatly excited and proceeded to take over the mission for themselves including the guns of the soldiery thereupon captain de la guerra assembled a force at the presidio and marched to attack the mission a battle of several hours duration followed during which two indians were killed and a number on both sides wounded Presently, most of the Indians took to the hills, and the victorious soldiery sacked the Indian homes, killing a few more of their erstwhile opponents in the process. It was not long afterward that word reached Monterey. Governor Arguello at once dispatched Lieutenant José Mariano Estrada with an enormous army, as things went in Alta California, of a hundred men. Estrada at length reached Purisima Concepcion, where the victorious mission indians of that place were still entrenched armed with muskets and two small cannon they did not know how to use their strength however and estrada's four-pounder did such execution among them that they decided to flee they were cut off and compelled to surrender sixteen indians had been killed and many more wounded three of the attacking force were wounded one of them mortally 
Several more battles were fought in this campaign, but these took place across the mountains in the Tulares, whither three successive expeditions followed the fugitives from Santa Barbara. Eventually peace was made, and most of the Indians returned to the mission. In November 1825, Lieutenant Colonel Echiandia arrived from Mexico to become governor of the province. He has been described as, quote, a tall, thin, juiceless man, possessing but little enterprise or force of character, and much concerned about the effect of California climate on his not-too-robust health. The new governor was to be largely responsible for many of the troubles which Alta California suffered in the ensuing years. One of them he started right away when he fixed his residence at San Diego instead of going to Monterey thus making a beginning of the conflict between North and South, which was to continue for the rest of the era. He had been appointed governor of Baja California as well, and asserted that he could take care of the two provinces much better from San Diego than from the capital in the North. It was generally recognized, however, that he feared the climate of Monterey would prove too rigorous for him. Of Echiandia's ill-advised handling of the missions, more will be said presently. Meanwhile, he got into difficulties with the soldiers, who had for years been obliged to get on without pay, and who became more and more disgruntled when Echiandia, who was indeed at his wits' ends for funds, did nothing to help them. The soldiers at Monterey revolted in 1828, but were persuaded to resume their duties. In November 1829, however, they decided to revolt in earnest. The principal officers at that post were seized, and a certain rancher named Joaquin Solis, ex-soldier and more recently ex-convict, was installed in command. A proclamation was drawn up reciting their grievances against Echeandia and announcing their intention of setting up a new governor. Various foreigners in Monterey contributed funds for the enterprise, and the garrison of San Francisco declared for the revolt. After the first flush of excitement, the rebellion lost its grip. The criminal record of the leader was a grave handicap. To save the situation, Solis resolved upon a campaign in the South. At first, all was bright. The mission fathers, influenced no doubt by their dislike of Echeandia, received him graciously on the way. The garrison at Santa Barbara got one of his proclamations and rose in his favor. And then again the tide turned. The soldiers of Santa Barbara were persuaded to resume their allegiance. Echeandia presently reached that post, and a little later Solis and his army appeared from the north. The Battle of Santa Barbara, which followed, was indeed of several days' duration, but in the main it was a war of words. Solis fired the last gun in the shape of a proclamation announcing that he and his men were ready to fight and never would surrender until they got their pay, shortly after which he beat a retreat. Echeandia's batteries, in the shape of promises to forgive those who would come over to his side, had, meanwhile, wrought great execution in Solis's ranks through desertion. Echeandia advanced to Monterey, captured Solis and other ringleaders, and shipped them off to Mexico. Thus ended the first revolt of the Californians against constituted Mexican authority. The government, and the South as against the North, had proved victorious in a bloodless war. Echeandia found that the climate of Monterey was endurable after all, and remained there for a year. Indeed, 
when the newly appointed governor lieutenant colonel victoria asked him to come to san diego to surrender his office echeandia nevertheless stayed on at monterey and would not even go to santa barbara where he was next requested to appear so victoria came north to monterey and was installed in office in january eighteen thirty one and now that he was already in monterey made that place his capital thus monterey came into its own again and indirectly through the agency of the man who had formerly deprived it of its proud position footnote echeandia all but robbed california of its name in eighteen twenty seven he persuaded the deputacion to change it to montezuma a coat of arms was planned to consist of an indian with plume bow and quiver in the act of crossing a strait all within an oval having on the outside an olive and an oak in memory of the first peopling of the americas which according to the most common opinion was by the strait of Anian. the act required the approval of the mexican government which it never received and so it came to naught in footnote victoria was primarily a soldier out of sympathy with the republican institutions and a firm believer in military methods and civil administration he began a campaign against evildoers which was somewhat too rigorous sentences of death and execution followed in rapid succession this was well enough but when the governor showed a disposition also to run roughshod over political opponents the spark of revolution was kindled the missionaries whose cause he had defended were soon almost alone in supporting him the revolt broke out in the south late in eighteen thirty one being fostered by men like jose antonio carrillo juan bandini pio pico and abel stearns an american who had come to california in eighteen twenty nine these were among the most prominent people in that section leadership in the enterprise was offered to echeandia who had returned to san diego after the expiration of his term of office he accepted and operations began with the capture of san diego and los angeles which were taken by the rebels without a battle meanwhile governor victoria with some thirty disciplined soldiers had hurried south the insurgents under captain pablo portilla of san diego numbered perhaps as many as a hundred and fifty but most of them were untrained the two armies met just a few miles from los angeles near cahuenga pass the battle which followed did not result in great loss of life but was perhaps as spectacular as any that was ever fought in the province it began when victoria despising his opponents advanced alone and called on portilla and his regulars to come over to his side he then directed his own men to fire a volley presumably in order to frighten the enemy's raw recruits without hurting them the southern soldiery replied with a few shots and then started to run away whereupon victoria and captain romualdo pacheco followed by one or two others rode forward to pursue them up to this time nobody had been hit but the governor had made a miscalculation which was to cost him dear in the opposing army were several individuals who must have been desirous of emulating the achievements of the knights of old in the days when battles were entrusted to champions of the warring forces in single combat such a person it seems was jose maria avila sword in hand he made a thundering charge against pacheco who for his part rode to meet him with lance ready for action 
Their horses passed, but Avila checked his steed, drew a pistol, and shot Pacheco, killing him instantly. Looking for more worlds to conquer, he threw himself upon Victoria. Other horsemen on both sides joined in the conflict. In the ensuing melee, Avila was unhorsed and killed, Victoria received several lance wounds, and at least one other was wounded. Unauthenticated popular versions of the battle have it that Avila himself wounded Victoria, and that it was the governor who killed the fire-eating Avila. The battle was over, and Victoria remained in possession of the field. Virtually, however, the impetuous Avila had turned the scale in favor of the Californians. Victoria wounded saw matters in a different light than Victoria sound in body would have viewed them. Instead of capturing Los Angeles and quelling the revolt, he betook himself to bed at San Gabriel, and from there informed Echeandia that he was not only willing, but even desirous that he be sent to Mexico, promising to return no more. His offer was accepted, and several weeks later he took his departure. With their experience of the militarist Victoria fresh in mind, the Californians resolved to separate the civil from the military functions of government. The Deputacion, as the provincial legislature was called, elected Pio Pico civil governor, F.A. Politico, in January 1832. Less than three weeks later, however, he was obliged to resign, primarily on account of Echeandia's failure to support him. It now seems that Echeandia had a clear field, but unexpected opposition developed in the north. The foreigners of British and American extraction had been inclined to favor Victoria in the late controversy, because he at least stood for good order. Californian revolutions might not cause much loss of life, but they were bad for business, and that was what the foreign colony was interested in most of all. To them, it seemed that the disputes of Pico and Echeandia portended a continuance of disorder. They, therefore, joined readily in a movement to set up Agustin Zamorano, former gubernatorial secretary to Echeandia and Victoria. Under leadership of William Hartnell, a foreign company was formed to defend Monterey from attack. The Hispanic population of the North was equally well disposed to Zamorano, influenced possibly by Echeandia's evident intention of remaining at San Diego instead of coming to Monterey. Zamorano was therefore acknowledged as temporary governor until such time as the Mexican authorities should appoint a successor to the deposed Victoria. One of the earliest measures of Zamorano's government was to send an armed force south under Lieutenant Juan Maria Ibarra to defend Santa Barbara against an attack by Echeandia. Ibarra pushed on until he reached Los Angeles. Then came rumors that Echeandia was about to attack him. As the story went, the Mission Indians, who, as is presently to be explained, were devoted partisans of Echeandia, were flocking to his standard. Ibarra decided, therefore, to retreat. On his way, he found a veritable enemy in his rear in the shape of a score of armed convicts. These were captured and sent to Monterey. The war now actively entered into the proclamation stage. The pen proved mightier than the sword, and in May, both sides agreed to call it a draw. An arrangement was made whereby Zamorano and Echeandia should each remain in power until a governor from Mexico arrived. It is interesting to note that Zamorano's sphere of control was to extend as far south as San Fernando, 
while San Gabriel was the limit of Echeandia's sway. In January 1833, the new governor from Mexico arrived. He was Jose Figueroa, assuredly one of the greatest figures in the history of Alta California. A brevet brigadier general, he had also been governor of Sonora and Sinaloa for six years, and had interested himself in the reopening of the Anza route to the Pacific coast. Wars with the Yaquis and the Apaches had kept him from putting his plan into effect, but he had made himself fully aware of the importance of the northern province and the desirability of developing its resources. Ill health led him to seek retirement almost from the moment of his arrival, and brought about his death some two years and a half later. Yet he was to accomplish more than any governor of the province ever had, with a possible exception of Neve. One of Figueroa's first acts had to do with the grant of an amnesty to all who had been concerned in the late revolt. This announcement he caused to be published in a circular dated January 16, 1833, the first printing in the history of the province. He then applied himself with more than usual success to internal administration. If he had confined himself merely to that, he would undoubtedly have been regarded as one of the great governors, but he aspired to something more. He had been instructed to explore the regions north of the Bay of San Francisco and found settlements to defend that country against the Russians of Fort Ross and the English along the Columbia. Unlike some of his predecessors who had received similar commands, Figueroa at once took action and chose Mariano Guadalupe Viejo as his instrument. Viejo was at the time an alferez at San Francisco, son of Ignacio Vallejo, who came with Rivera in 1774, and brother of José Vallejo, who had distinguished himself in the Bouchard affair, he himself had won honors in several Indian campaigns and in provincial politics, though only twenty-five years old. Figueroa sent him north of the bay to explore for a presidial site. Vallejo made a trip to Bodega and Fort Ross in April 1833, and in the fall established a colony of ten settlers at Petaluma, and a smaller colony at Santa Rosa. In May of the following year, Figueroa learned that his petition to retire had been acted upon favorably, and that his successor, José María Hiar, was coming to Alta California with a great body of colonists. In August, therefore, Figueroa himself inspected the North Bay country in order to make some preparations for the expected colonists. He went as far as Fort Ross. On his return, however, he received a message which gave him pause in his plans. Ever since the change of flag from Spain to Mexico, the Mexican government had encouraged colonization of Alta California. A law of 1824 made liberal provision for intending settlers. Not content with this, the authorities resorted to other means which occasioned no little resentment. They began to use Alta California as a penal colony. Seventeen convicts arrived in 1825, including the already mentioned Joaquin Solis. Within another year, more than a hundred others had been sent, and in 1830, a shipload of 80 arrived. In 1833, a new project was set on foot in Mexico by José María Padres. Padres had been in Alta California for a time, where he had conceived a plan for the spoilation of the missions under the guise of secular administration of the temporalities. He won support from many who hoped to share in the proceeds. 
Exiled by Victoria in 1831, he built up a project of colonization around this same idea of utilizing the mission wealth. In Jose Maria Hillar, he found the man he needed to back his projects, and the two together procured the support of the national government. Hillar was to be civil governor and director of colonization, and a subordinate post was provided for Padres. The government offered allowances in pay, implements, seed, and domestic animals to all who would go. Wherefore, Hillar and Padres got together about a hundred and twenty colonists of better than usual quality and left San Blas in July 1834 in two ships. Footnote. One of the colonists was José María Covarrubias, later a member of the Constitutional Convention of 1849 and the first four legislatures of the state. End quote. At about that same time, there was a change in government in Mexico. The new president was distrustful of the Hillar Padres project. Too late to stop the expedition, he resolved to send a messenger over the Anza route, directing Figueroa not to turn over the government to Hillar, whose commission he had revoked. The emissary, Rafael Amador by name, made a phenomenal overland journey from Mexico to Monterrey in from 40 to 48 days, traveling mostly alone, barely escaping death at the hands of the Indians of the Colorado, and nearly perishing from thirst in the desert. Naturally, Figueroa's attitude toward the coming settlers underwent a change. Hillar, with one of his ships, had already put in at San Diego on September 1st. From there, he proceeded by land to Monterey, telling the mission Indians, as he went along, that he had come to free them. Padres, with the other vessel, reached Monterey on September 25th. Several members of the Deputación had formerly been prominent supporters of Padres' secularization plan, but now they turned against him upon learning that he had promised many of his colonists the same profitable employment as mission administrators, which, several years before, he had promised them. They therefore voted that Figueroa should continue to be the governor and should make such provisions for the colonists as he might see fit. Hiar tried argument and bribery in order to induce Figueroa to give him the administration of the missions, but without avail. It was eventually decided to send the colonists north of the bay, and the missions were called upon to supply them with food until the settlers could raise crops of their own. They might have starved, however, if it had not been for Mariano Vallejo, who caused them to be transferred to the Sonoma Valley and furnished with provisions during the winter. In the end, the colonists dispersed, though most of them remained in the North Bay District. Hiar and Padreas were presently accused of having been implicated in a minor outbreak at Los Angeles in March 1835 and were sent back to Mexico. Relieved of their embarrassing presence, Figueroa went actively ahead with measures for colonization during the few remaining months of his life. He made a number of land grants to individual settlers, as indeed he had done before. While in Los Angeles, he met William Antonio Richardson, an Englishman born, who, as a youth of 22, had reached Alta California in 1822 as mate of a British ship, which he deserted. Figueroa induced Richardson to accept an appointment as captain of the port of San Francisco. 
Richardson went there and put up the first building in San Francisco other than those at the less conveniently located Presidio and Mission. Around this house, as a nucleus, a settlement called Yerba Buena sprang up, where the shipping and business interests of the Bay region centered, eventually to become the principal district of the city of San Francisco. By Figueroa's order, too, a town was founded at Sonoma, then so named, in 1835 by Vallejo, near the mission San Francisco Solano. Figueroa is most often remembered in connection with the secularization of the missions. It will be recalled that in theory the Spanish missions were limited to a period of ten years, after which they were to be converted into civilian towns and the missionaries were to move on to a new field. Nothing like that had ever been attempted in Alta California, and rarely, if ever, elsewhere. In 1813, the Spanish Cortes passed a law calling for the immediate secularization of all missions which had existed as such for ten years or more. This law was not published in Alta California until 1821, but nothing was done to carry it into effect. Indeed, there were no priests to replace the friars. The missions at that time were perhaps at or near their greatest period of prosperity. The number of Indians under mission control was still very large, and the mission properties were easily the greater part of the wealth of the province. For ten years they had been the principal support of the military establishment, but that expense could be written off as a dead loss without seriously impairing their financial position. Nevertheless, the missions were already doomed of their own weight, irrespective of any legislation that might be passed. For years, deaths at the mission had outrun births, and the growing deficiency could not be supplied by conversions of the non-Christian tribes, since these either were not present at all in the mission area, or else in very scant number. Inevitably, the same fate was in store for the Californian Indians that has been the lot of other backward peoples in the presence of white civilization. Under the most favorable circumstances, the end might have been postponed longer than it was, but more could hardly have been expected. Pressure began to be put upon the missions from the outset of Mexican rule. Taxes were imposed. The friars protested, but paid. Nothing of importance happened, however, until after the arrival of Echeandia. This governor, if anybody other than the Mexican authorities, and not Figueroa, is the one who should be charged with precipitating the downfall of the missions, although it was in the administration of the latter that the decisive step was taken. Cognizant of the fact that Mexican sentiment strongly favored secularization, Echeandia resolved upon a policy to bring his own government into accord with the prevailing view. In 1826, therefore, he issued an order that married Indians of the missions south of Monterey were to be allowed to leave the missions, provided they had been Christians for fifteen years or from infancy, and were esteemed capable of supporting themselves. This preliminary measure had scant effect. Indeed, there were few Indians who could have maintained themselves in a civilized manner. In 1827, the Mexican law called for the expulsion of all friars from the Republic. But this, too, was virtually a dead letter in Alta California. Of far more importance was a provincial law of 1830 prepared by Echeandia in response to urgings from Mexico and promulgated with the approval of the national government. 
This provided for gradual secularization of the missions. The mere announcement of the law was enough to occasion a great change. There was a more or less general feeling of opposition to the friars. The rank and file of the soldiery, still unpaid, often in rags, and dependent upon the missions for the little they had, looked with envy or indignation at the comparative opulence of the friars and their native wards. Others were eager to enhance their private fortune by spoliation of the missions, or else felt aggrieved by the objections of the friars to grants of land they had received, which the missionaries claimed infringed upon their holdings. Few were possessed of a religious ardor which might have arranged them on the side of the friars, for they had grown up without priests, except at such intervals as the Franciscans came in from the missions to act in the capacity of curates. Not a few pointed out that mission servitude accorded ill with republican ideas. Of more account was the attitude of the mission Indians. They understood that Echandia was about to give them freedom, but freedom to them meant cessation from work, the end of punishments, a right to do as they pleased, and a permanent food supply from an unending mission store. They listened readily to those who told them that the friars were robbing them of their lands, or treating them with undue cruelty, as well as to those who painted the prospective freedom in brightest colors. Personal attachment to the missionaries held many to their tasks, but it was increasingly difficult to get the others to do anything at all. Echeandia made matters worse by appointing agents on his own initiative to manage the mission estates on behalf of the emancipated Indians. At the time Figueroa came to Alta California, the immediate overthrow of the missions seems not to have been contemplated. Indeed, he was accompanied by ten friars sent out to supply rapidly growing vacancies. These friars were Franciscans, but not from the College of San Fernando, which was no longer able to provide missionaries. They and their leader, Francisco Garcia de Ego, were from the College of Zacatecas. Figueroa had been instructed to proceed with gradual secularization, but to restore the missions to the position they held before Echeandia's unauthorized acts. A few months after his arrival, Figueroa started south on a mission tour. He found that Echeandia had caused mischief beyond repair. Mission discipline along former lines was utterly gone. On the other hand, he saw enough to convince himself that immediate secularization would be unwise, since the Indians were incapable of managing their own affairs. Indeed, the institution of private property, especially in land, had little meaning to them. Something had to be done, however, so he issued an order for the emancipation of such Indians as were best fitted for liberty. Lands, implements, seed, and animals were to be allotted to them, though in other respects they were to remain for the time being subject to the civil and religious authorities. Yet, of the fifty-nine heads of families at San Diego deemed worthy of this prospect, only two cared to make the trial, while ten out of a hundred and eight accepted at San Luis Rey. Surely a most disappointing showing. Figueroa was now in substantial agreement with Garcia and Duran, the two father presidents, that secularization was inadvisable unless upon a gradual basis, and wrote to Mexico in protest against any legislation to hasten the process. He also opposed granting any of the mission lands to intending colonists, holding that they should be reserved for the Indians alone. 
and yet Figueroa was called upon to execute the most drastic measure of secularization that had thus far been enacted. In August 1833, the Mexican government declared itself unequivocally for secularization. A supplemental act of November associated colonization, with a Padreas Iyar project in mind, with secularization and proposed to make use of the pious fund to assist in the plan. Another law of April 1834 insisted that secularization should go into effect within four months. Figueroa had, of necessity, to execute these laws, but did what he could to save something out of the wreck. He even stretched the law by providing for gradual secularization, though somewhat more hastened than formerly, instead of completing it in four months. The following were the principal provisions of his decree, dated August ninth, 1834. A beginning was to be made with ten of the missions only. Roughly speaking, half of the mission properties were to be distributed among the Indians. The rest were to be put in charge of secular administrators for the support of the religious establishment and other objects for the public good. The Indians were required to perform indispensable community work and could not legally sell their lands or chattels. Cattle were not to be killed in large numbers, except as should be necessary for purposes of maintenance. Footnote. For several years, an indiscriminate slaughter of mission cattle had been going on, thousands being killed for their hides only. These were added to the mission store, but it has been denied that the friars authorized the killings. On the contrary, it is asserted that they tried, without success, to prevent them. In footnote. Finally, in the absence of curates, the friars were to remain at the missions in charge of religious instruction. This legislation was not perfect, but was perhaps as good as could be expected under the circumstances. The proof that it accomplished something is that the missions remained in existence for more than a decade, and almost to the very end were still able to provide the greater part of the provincial revenues. Unfortunately, Figueroa did not live long enough to supervise the execution of his decree, and it was precisely the execution of the decree, and not the decree itself, which was responsible for such harm as resulted. As one writer says, quote, He was not the author of secularization. He did not even approve it. He foresaw the disaster that must follow if the law of August 1833 were enforced, as he was required to enforce it, and he did what he could, and as much as any man could have done, to confine the mischief within the narrowest limits. Administrators were appointed for ten of the missions in 1834, for six more in 1835, and for the other five in 1836. After the death of Figueroa, Alta California suffered for several years from internal convulsions. During all this time, the administrators were left to their own devices. Many of them enriched both themselves and their friends. Still others were merely incompetent, and a few, perhaps, were both honest and capable. The distributions of property to the Indians were made as each administrator saw fit. The worst feature of the system, however, was the behavior of the Indians. Relieved from mission discipline, they refused to work. Despite the provisions of the law, they sold their properties, especially domestic animals, for anything they would bring. 
when their own stock of supplies was gone some hired themselves out in a state of virtual slavery to such families as could employ them others joined the non-christian tribesmen in horse stealing and life in a state of barbarism and still others sank to the uttermost depths of degradation the missions and the mission system were dead and yet the corpse lived on some indians indeed had returned to the secularized missions with the re-establishment of peace an earnest attempt was made to remedy affairs early in eighteen thirty nine governor alvarado appointed william hartnell a man of high character and notable attainments the citador of the missions with authority to correct abuses that had sprung up hartnell made a tour of the missions and found that they had greatly deteriorated at his suggestion he himself was made superintendent of the entire system and the administrators became mere clerical subordinates held to strict accountability when he endeavored to put the new regulation into effect in eighteen forty however he met with so much opposition on the part of certain administrators that he resigned thus ended the most promising effort of the times at restoration of the missions it was in eighteen forty two that the former zacatecan father president garcia diego was invested with the authority of a bishop of the two californias he was empowered to use the pious fund to establish a cathedral and a college for the education of priests it seemed now that the long-delayed delivery to the secular clergy of the religious side of the mission work might be made when presto a new government in mexico refused to turn over the pious fund to bishop garcia and diverted it into the mexican treasury in eighteen forty three the missions seemed at length to be exhausted in hopes of making them yield more profitably governor micheltorena restored them to the friars but the corpse was now indeed too dead to be resuscitated so in eighteen forty four in order to raise funds for general defense in view of the possibility of war between the united states and mexico Miguel torino authorized the sale or rental of the missions in the next two years all but santa barbara passed into private hands though the titles of purchasers were subsequently invalidated by the united states government at the time of the transfer but little was left in february eighteen forty four father duran reported that san miguel and san luis obispo were virtually abandoned purissima concepcion had about two hundred indians as against fifteen hundred and twenty two in eighteen o four santa barbara had two hundred and eighty seven compared with eighteen hundred ninety two in eighteen o three and the other southern missions were in an utterly hopeless condition on june first eighteen forty six narciso duran who had resided in alta california forty years and had been father president most of the time since eighteen twenty five eighteen twenty five to eighteen twenty seven eighteen thirty one to eighteen thirty eight and eighteen forty four to eighteen forty six died in his seventieth year he has been called the last and perhaps the ablest of the franciscan prelates but as the outstanding figure in the decline he must of necessity yield place to the more fortunate serra and lasuen however that may be his death is taken as marking the end of the missions no successor was appointed for none was needed end of chapter thirty four